I'm Julie Ross. And I'm Gregory Abbey. And you're listening to the Parenting Horizons podcast. Julie is a longtime parent educator and counselor. And Greg is an actor, writer, and director, and more importantly, a parent just like you. Through conversations covering a range of different topics, challenges, and roadblocks, we hope to give you a few of Julie's tools that might just help make parenting a little bit easier. Look, nobody's perfect, and parenting is challenging, to say the least. With a few skills under our belts, though, we might just be able to be good enough parents and enjoy the journey and our children a little bit more in the process. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Parenting Horizons podcast. Uh, Julie, how are you feeling? Are you feeling refreshed? Are you ready to, to move into the, to the fall? I am. I'm excited about moving into the fall. I had a great, relaxing summer, and it's time to get started again. Great. So we're really lucky we have another guest today on this episode, and our guest is, our guest is Dr. Laura McGuire, and we're going to be talking about consent today, which, uh, which is a great topic. A lot of parents have kids that are going back to school. So we're going to talk about consent and how to talk to your kids about consent. We're going to cover whether they're in high school, whether they're going off to college. Um, so it's great. And, and Dr. McGuire has uh, written a book. It's called The Sexual Misconduct Prevention Guidebook. So they seem like they will be an excellent uh, guest to have today. So Dr. McGuire, why don't you just start by telling us a little bit about yourself and how you got to this point? Yes. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, that's, that's one of those questions, like when you go to a retreat or you start a new job, right? And they're like, everyone go around and say something about yourself, <laughs> which I literally just did to my college students that I'm teaching last night. So, you know, I, it's okay. We all do it, but it's always tricky. Um, how I got to this point really is this crossroads of my experience as a survivor of domestic violence and being passionate about social justice since I was very, very young. And then going to school kind of later in life, I have a unique educational journey and that influenced the kind of students that I worked with, their experiences, and then starting programming for universities and for the government to prevent sexual misconduct and also to raise awareness about how diversity, equity, and inclusion interacts with increased risk for victimization. And how do we change that? How do we address that? Could you explain a little bit what that last thing means that you just said? Could you go into that a little bit? Yes. So I run the National Center for Equity and Agency, and our focus is on both sexual misconduct and that everything from harassment to stalking to more physically violent forms such as assault. And also diversity, equity, and inclusion, which is how do we have awareness of communities that have been historically marginalized and oppressed, mm. and how do we work to change that, make it better? And so a lot of people hear those two things, and they're like, wow, that is so different. <laughs> what what <laughs> opposite polarizing topics? Um, but really, they're not. They're very much intertwined, because when we look at how do we protect people? How do we create cultural narratives that don't allow certain populations to be at an increased risk of being a victim of violence, again, whether that's verbal or physical or anything in between? Well, we have to talk about that, right? We have to talk about the fact that trans women of color are the most likely, even on college campuses, hmm. even in high schools, to be the victims of sexual assault. Um, for students with disabilities, for students who have any kind of difference, right? Predators, even peer predators are going to look at them and, and see someone that they can hurt more. And mm. if they do come forward and say someone hurt me, they're less likely to be supported, less likely to be believed because they don't fit this little box we have in our culture of what a victim should look like. So that's that's kind of my life's work is blending these conversations. Wow, that sounds wow. like really important, and also that that you that you bring in all of those elements to the conversation. It sounds like too. So why don't we just dive in? And and you talk about three ways, and I'm actually excited because I have two daughters, 
it doesn't necessarily have to be a daughter, but I do have two daughters that are 15 and 17, going to be a freshman and senior. So I have a daughter starting high school, one going off to college. So I'm, I'm, and we've had open conversations, but I don't know that we've had specific conversations about consent. So I'm kind of excited to hear what you have to say about this. Um, You talk about three ways to teach your children about consent uh, before they head back to school. So what are those three ways? So there are kind of three objectives, right, to have in your mind. And then in this book, I give some advice, but also in my first book, Creating Cultures of Consent, A Guide for Parents and Educators, we really get down into the nitty gritty of in that high school environment, what are some prompts you can use to start these conversations as well? But the first thing is, and and I think this can sometimes be the hardest, is clarifying your why. You know, Science and I did that TED Talk years ago, know your why or what's your why. And it's become a really popular catchphrase, but it's it's so important. So what should our why be and what should it not be? Well, we don't want our why to be, I don't want them to get in trouble or I'm going to scare them into not making a mistake, right? Mm. Um, And sometimes when I talk to parents, uh, so on the don't get in trouble side, I've had some folks say to me, oh yeah, I'm seeing all the changes that are going on in the world. And so I told my kids, when you go to school and you date anyone, I want you to bring a contract. And I want you you to make everybody sign it. Seriously. That's interestingly extreme. (laughs) Yes. Right. And they're being facetious kind of. Um, But but that is, I think where a lot of people are is, oh, this is about compliance. This is, and a lot of schools Mm. are there too. We're going to give them a laundry list of things not to do Mm. and they just won't do them. And then everything will be good. Um, So that's not a good why. What do we want our why to be focused on is we want to give them a life skill. Consent is a life skill. This is not about your high school policy, your college's policy. This is about when you go out into the workplace, right? Because think about the people who are getting in trouble for all of the things that came up with the Me Too movement in the corporate environment. We're probably doing those things, and we know some of them are doing those things in college, in high school, right? And so we want to address that before it escalates to where they're in a powerful position and causing a lot of harm. Hmm. And also we want to help them understand what they have a right to so that they're hopefully not harmed, right? So if I know I have the right to set certain boundaries, if I know that people need to hear an affirmative and enthusiastic yes from me, that my silence is not consent, that I don't have to be screaming no for it to not be okay. Mm -hmm. One, I'm probably going to have a different, and we know this from research, have a different level of confidence in saying and doing those things. But also, if something does go wrong, because we can never prevent anything 100%, then my child knows. I've also talked to them about things like victim blaming and that I'm not going to do that, that I'm here to support them and that consent will be something that isn't ever weaponized against them. So it sounds like the first thing you were sort of describing when you were describing that parent, it sounded more like the parent was functioning from a place of fear and kind of, you know, this really strict, I mean, you kind of joked about the contract. And so the idea is that, I mean, because I think what Julie and I talk a lot about on this is as having always having an open conversation with your children. So there's a back and forth as opposed to like, I'm going to place these rules on top of you. So it sort of seems like that's what you're saying. So if you go to your, if you go to, if a parent goes to their child to have this conversation, like, how do you open it up? Do you open it up with questions? And I guess along with the why, and Julie says this a lot too, is that the parent almost has to take some time to get clear about how do I feel about this? Where am I at? Does that make sense? Like, how how do you yeah. literally approach that conversation? And the, and the other thing, yeah, the other thing that I I, I want to kind of include here is something that comes up all the time when I'm when I'm speaking to parents, which is that it starts at the bar and bat mitzvah age, and these 
cishet girls are wanting to wear super skimpy, tight clothing, you know, nine inch heels, the whole thing. And the parents say, you know, they're asking for trouble. And so we talk, I talk about victim blaming. No, they're not asking for trouble. And then they, the question that they pose to me, which I would love to get your feedback on is, well, how do I keep them safe? Because I recognize, you know, they, they can get to the point where they recognize that you can dress any way that makes you feel good about yourself, you know, and if that's the nine inch heels or the short skirts, that should be fine, but that the world doesn't operate necessarily with those same kind of rules. Parents will say to me, they're making themselves more vulnerable by wearing clothing like that. Uh, You know, how do you wrestle with that? I think that's hard. Yes. So two very good questions. Very good. (laughs) Um, Okay. So starting with how do you start this conversation and, Mm -hmm. and you already kind of touched on it. You have to do it within yourself. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And this is true across the board with anything. It starts at the top, right? And at the top in a family, you're the parents. So no matter what you say, no matter how many awesome key talking points you have laid out, you have to be modeling this. You have to be living this. And I think one really good way if people are like, oh my goodness, this sounds intense. I'm so confused by what has happened the past few years. I'm trying to wrap my head around it. I'm hearing all these different things is to, again, model learning, right? Say, you know, when I was growing up, we really used to joke about a sure thing. There was even a movie called A Sure Thing. Remember that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and we really thought that was legitimate, that you could just guarantee consent from somebody because they said they were into you. And, you know, we used to joke about that and, and believe it. And now I think about how awful that must have been for particularly young women, but even for young men who felt mm-hmm. like they had to live up to certain standards because they were hypersexualized as well. Mm-hmm. So talk about it that way, right? Talk about, I'm learning about this and I'm rethinking things and it's opening my eyes. What do you think? What are things that you see maybe have changed because of how the world's talking about this stuff for your generation? And are there still things you're observing that you think, oh, we, we need to address this because it's still not right. It's still not okay. So I would start there. Um, and then to, oh my goodness, yes, the, the whole conversation <laughs> about sexuality, right? And coming into our sexuality when we're teenagers, that is <laughs> really scary for a lot of parents, right? Yeah. And I am a parent myself of a tween and a teen, so I, I'm there. I'm not just theoretically there. <laughs> I actually live this too. <laughs> and it is tough because it is one of those again, scripts we have culturally that somebody can kind of be asking for something or giving the wrong message, right? That if dressed in a way that is embracing and celebrating your changing body and you're enjoying, I think all of us went through that as teens. You're like, wow, look at me. And I get all this attention and I I love it. It feels Mm -hmm. awesome. And as parents, we're like, but you don't understand the power that that has and how people can use it to hurt you. What we know, and I talk about this from two perspectives, the study of sexual agency and sexual subjectivity, which are these two really powerful social science-y things that talk to us about what is it that changes in a young person internally to empower them to decrease the risk that someone will be able to push their boundaries. Mm -hmm. Then I also look at this cross-culturally, which a lot of people forget about. There are cultures where rape and domestic violence are almost non-existent. They're called rape-free cultures, and they've been studied for decades. What do they do differently? Yeah. And they don't, they don't tell their young women, watch out. Right. And they don't tell them cover up. And they don't make sex scary. They're actually very open about it. Um, they're very supportive of helping them navigate this, this emerging experience and talk to them about supporting them so they can set boundaries and know their parents have their back, not that they have to hide it from them. Mm-hmm. And so that's what we have to learn from, right, is Mm -hmm. even if our visceral response that's been programmed into us in Western cultures for hundreds of years is to say, 
watch out, this is bad, this is scary. Research does not back that. Hmm. So we want to say instead, yes, I I know when we are getting into this stage of life, it is so exciting and our bodies are, can be so beautiful and we, we love showing them and that's natural. That's just part of the evolution of going into adulthood. But let's talk about what some other people might say about that. How do we combat that? How mm. do we address if someone says to us, oh, you know, you're asking for the wrong thing or well, I thought, you know, you would go this far because of that length of your skirt or how low your shirt is. What do we say in those moments that we know, no, this is my body mm -hmm. and I can dress it or wear whatever feels good to me. And that has nothing to do with consent. That has nothing to do with anything else. Mm -hmm. And when we see those shifts, again, this is then becomes a life skill. This goes on for the rest of their life. Mm -hmm. and really does change that paradigm. I want to ask, you, you, you've you already sort of touched on this, but as you're talking, so I'm just thinking about my older daughter, and, you know, we live in Manhattan, which is maybe a different experience, but I think this can be everywhere, but it feels kind of specific in Manhattan, that, and we, we live uptown um, in Harlem, and she has definitely left the apartment some days dressed in a way that I know is empowering for her, um, but internally, I'm like, oh, man, she's going to get a lot of attention. I, I'm worried that she's going to get a lot of attention that she doesn't want. I think you've already kind of touched on this. I guess my question is what I end up doing is not saying anything because I know enough not to say like, hey, you can't really wear that. I certainly wouldn't say that. And what's also amazing is she's wearing things that I can tell are making her feel good about herself. Am I supposed to have a, because I'm realizing as you're speaking, what I end up doing is not saying anything at all. Is that the place to go? Is the place to go when she comes home to say like, hey, how was it for you to be out in the city today? Did you get any comments that were unkind? Were, or I don't know. What do I do in that situation? What does a parent do? But what do I do, Dr. McGuire? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is such a good conversation. And again, I, I think a lot of parents are really good at connect with this because they're like, I think these things and I have nowhere to ask them. So yeah. thank you for asking them. <laughs> so yes, right. Uh, anytime we don't communicate about something, it doesn't help anyone, mm -hmm. right? And this is for, uh, we say this in the business world, we say this in relationship counseling, we say this in parenting, mm -hmm. right? You have to communicate. So just avoiding it isn't going to be super helpful. But I also think what we want to do, and, and again, this is across the board with anything to do with consent or life or et cetera, is we want to weave these conversations into our everyday life, hmm. right? Not just say, okay, I'm waiting for you to come home. So oh, we can you're have the home. big talk. Yeah, let's have this big <laughs> talk about sexual harassment in the streets of New York. I mean, you might want to say, you know, again, I have to be honest with you. I'm I'm amazed at how grown you look these days. And I love your sense of fashion and exploration there and that you're finding mm -hmm. what works for you. But I'm going to tell you the truth, right? I'm a parent and I also know how when I was young, I thought like everybody was nice and had good intentions. And now I know how many people don't mm -hmm. and have really horrible things in their mind when they look at someone your age and you might not think about that. Right. So it scares me. I just want to tell you that this is, this is challenging for me. But again, let's talk about maybe some tools for if someone does say something, how mm. to be safe. And, and I think the other thing is, again, when you maybe are watching a movie or you go to an art museum and you see a, 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 a painting from centuries past and it's kind of like predatory in nature, right? There's lots of art like that, which we look at now with different eyes. Um, or you're on the streets of Manhattan and you see mm -hmm. someone else get whistled at. Talk mm -hmm. about it then, right? right? And say, ah, oh, that, you know, even those people who are doing that in their mind might think I'm giving someone a compliment, but mm -hmm. how do you think it makes people really feel? And what if it was done in reverse? Can you imagine how they would feel vulnerable, right? And and so instead of making it this like serious kind of scary, which is always my third point, don't come from a fear-based perspective thing, 
how do we make this just an ongoing part of our dialogue about, again, life going out in the world and dealing with that effectively? I just want to say, and Julie, maybe you can hop in. What I really loved about what you just said is something we talk about all the time uh, on this podcast is I think I I often don't say anything because I, I don't want her to feel shamed and I don't feel that way. I, I don't want she, I can tell she feels empowered and I don't want to to crush that, tap that down. But what you just said is what we talk about often is that if you can make it about yourself and your feelings as opposed to you, you know, it can never be you to the child like, you know, you shouldn't dress like that. That's this. That's that. As opposed to because that is how I feel is like. Wow, I'm I feel great because I can tell how good about your how you feel about yourself. I just feel worried and scared about what how you're going to get treated out on the street today and I and it makes me feel uncomfortable and that's about me and so I just have to share that with you. Um <laughs> I have not done that, but I'm listening to you. I'm like, "Oh, yeah, okay. That's something I could say." So anyway, right. I mean, Julie, I feel like you talk about that all the time in your work in terms of how well, to approach. Sure. You know, and I think coupled with that is recognizing that as a parent, you can learn alongside your child. You can lean in with curiosity about what is your, you know, tell me about your experience on the streets of Manhattan or, you know, wherever you live. You know, tell me about what goes on for you out there. And, you know, I think you said it, uh, Dr. McGuire, I think you said at the kind of at the beginning of our conversation, you know, this idea of being vulnerable yourself and saying, I, I'm learning. You know, I've never been the parent of a 12-year-old, 13-year-old, 15-year-old before, and I'm kind of learning alongside with you. And the idea of like rape culture and stuff never came up when I was a kid, and it certainly did not for me growing up in Texas, which was, that's not a that's not a nice place to grow up. Um, and, uh, and it never came up and um, it, it presents itself as kind of a new idea to me as the parent. So tell me what you know about it. Tell me, you know, and ask them to do a little teaching of you because they, they are often far ahead in their ideas and what they are, they've been exposed to. And we're playing catch up as parents a lot of the time. Absolutely. And, and this brings up another point. As you're both saying this, I'm thinking about what we talked about in the very beginning about the intersectional piece here, because there's also this conversation comes up a lot with parents of LGBTQ plus youth, hmm. right? So you talked about the streets of Manhattan. So when your 16-year-old son says, I want to wear a skirt and lipstick hmm. on the streets of Manhattan, yeah. A lot of parents are going to say, oh, no, <laughs> right? Because <laughs> right. I love you mm. and this world is horrible and I read the news and I know what they do to people who are assigned male at birth and dress that way in a place like this. No way. Mm. Right. I remember when I was 14, I started telling my mom, you know, I think I'm bisexual. I'm trying to figure this out. And her response was, again, I love you. And that sounds terrifying mm. because I do not want your life to be scary. And I don't want people to be mean to my baby. And I don't want these things to happen. But instead of that helping me, how could that help me? Right? It just made me feel isolated and yeah. more scared because now I don't even have the, the people in my life who I know love me. They're having my back, right? That fear based perspective is, mm -hmm. is not really supporting anyone. Mm -hmm. um, I also think about this a lot where we see pe young people with disabilities, all different kinds, it's a huge word, right? but all different kinds of disabilities where their parents will not give them sex ed, mm. will not let them dress age appropriate or experiment with fashion, right? Because they're like, no, they they're deaf or they have um, Down syndrome or they're in a wheelchair and the world is so much more dangerous to them. And that is true. Mm -hmm. But then coming from that place of, I'm going to keep you in a little safe box where I know I can have my eyes on you all the time and the world isn't going to be cruel to you, actually only sets them up to be more vulnerable to danger. Right, right. right? To having to sneak around or keep something a secret and certainly not want to tell them, 
okay, I did do something. I did experiment. I did go out and someone did hurt me. Mm. Yeah. Right. Because now I'm going to be blamed because I didn't follow the be afraid advice. Right. Yeah. I didn't follow my parents' instructions. Not to mention the fact that when parents come at it from that fear-based approach, it it denies what the child, who the child is. Because the ultimate thing is, you know, if you come out as bisexual or you come out as trans or you come out as non-binary or whatever the, the thing might be, the moment the parent, what the parent's really saying is, I'm afraid of you being mm -hmm. something other than what I thought you were. And that's not okay with me. And that's such a horrible message to send to, you know, children who are just trying to be their authentic selves, um, you know, in the world. Well, and I also don't think we talk about this, and I think it's sort of the same idea is that when you don't give them the power to to figure it out, experience it, you take away their their agency and their ability to do that. It's sort of like when you coddle, I think Julia's talked often about when you coddle too much, then that child never figures out how to do it because you're kind of you're you're kind of placing this thing upon them. Um Dr. McGuire, I want to ask you maybe kind of a specific question that kind of popped in my head when we first started this conversation. And it's kind of maybe a, it's a specific thing about consent, I guess, that maybe you could share this with parents. And the scenario in my head, I think no means no is kind of the classic thing that feels kind of clear. If the, if the partner person says no, then it's clear that they want to stop. What does the child do in a scenario where they don't necessarily verbalize the no, but they're uncomfortable? Maybe they're in such shock that to what's going on um, that they are not able to verbalize it and something happens that they're not comfortable with or they've had, you know, maybe they're impaired by alcohol and drugs. What do you say to your child if, if the child says, this event happened and I, I didn't say stop because of A, B, or C. What does a child do in that circumstance? Yeah, hmm. this is Good this question. is so important. And you're right. We used to say all the time, no means no. Mm -hmm. It used to be the kind of rallying cry for the beginning of affirmative consent conversations uh, as we know them now. But we've evolved past that. And we very much now say it's yes means yes. Right? So a no is not enough. It has to be the presence of a yes. And even that, we have to explain to our, our children, you know, it's not just, yeah, okay, you know, it, that, that's, that's not a yes. We can tell that person's vocal prosody and body language is saying, I'm not actually okay with this. And we have mm -hmm. to pay attention to that and say, wait a minute, you're saying it's okay, but... I'm feeling like maybe you're not comfortable here. Like, can we talk about that? Mm. Right. Um, and, and also explaining that the most common response to someone pushing our boundaries, much less someone being really aggressive or cruel to us is going to be to, to, to what, what did you say? To, to freeze, freeze. Right. So we talk about fight and flight a lot, but we forget that the main one in that kind of arc of, neurological responses is freeze. And we don't get to really choose. We don't get to say to our brain, you know, today, if, if we're faced with danger, this is what we're going to do, right? It just kind of goes into this very primitive space where it decides for us how we're going to stay alive. And again, not most of the time, our first response our brain's going to do is say, stay really still. Mm. Maybe they'll go away, mm. right? And yeah, and so even when we talk to our young people, when we say, I told you about this stuff, we had these conversations, it's, it's just part of the human experience. Um, there's also other neurological responses people might feel really confused about, right? So especially when we're young, if someone is pushing those boundaries, if someone is physically touching us, it might feel really good. Mm -hmm. And our body might respond, especially if um, we are somebody who has a penis. And we have to talk to our kids about that. 
people are really afraid of going down that kind of rabbit hole because it's intense. But to say, yeah, someone might touch you and they might say, ooh, see, you're liking this, you're excited, but that's not consent either. That does not make it okay. Unless you are saying, yes, I 100% want to do this with you in this moment right now, then it's a no. It's mm. just a straight up no. Um, and so, yeah, having, having these conversations and I think the more we talk about them, then the more they feel like, hey, you, you remember you mentioned this a few years ago and I thought I'd know what to do, but I froze and my body responded and I got into a situation I have so much pain and, and mm. guilt about, but you talked to me about this, so I know you get it. Can I tell you what happened to me now? I also think just to add to that, we need to, to let kids know that if their first response is yes, but partway through they say no, that it's okay to change your mind and that that should be respected. Yes, yes. And we used to, again, we used to say this, right, culturally. We grew up with, um, especially for cishet girls, you're going to give him blue balls. Don't do that. Oh, my God. <laughs> I remember that. Oh, my goodness. Yes. Right? Terrible. Get it damage it for life. Oh my gosh, right? Exactly. <laughs> and so, so dispelling those myths, right? There's at no point can you, are you not able to say, I want to stop. <laughs> this isn't working for me anymore. Yeah. Um, and, and we see this, I think we still see this a lot in younger generations where people will say, you know, but you messaged me that we were going to hook up tonight. Mm. Or you promised me that I could even just text you, right? Because this is not just about sexual situations. This is about any kind of interpersonal communication. Mm -hmm. You said mm -hmm. we could hang out. You said I could text you every now and then. Now you're saying I can't? No, you said I could. Right. Well, consent is is time constraint, right? We get We have to renew it. And we have to be able to say, this isn't working for me anymore. I did it one time. It's not now. Now it's null and void, right? It's no longer a yes. Mm -hmm. um, and that can be very liberating, right? But we have to discuss those things exactly like you're saying. Yeah, I like I like that. That I mean, not that I was there, but I probably got myopic about the word consent. And I think when you were talking about the LGBTQ child walking down the street, consent is also, hey, I, I'm not comfortable with the way you're speaking to me. It doesn't necessarily have to be sexual, obviously, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we want to teach consent from a non-sexual perspective first. Why is that important? Why is that important? It's so important because we then we can do it much younger, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. When children are very, very, very small, we can teach them that their no is powerful, right? Um, if they are playing with a friend and they don't want to play anymore, it's not fun anymore. And they mm -hmm. say, I don't want to play anymore. That has to be respected. Even with uh, family members, right? We are talking about this now, especially around holidays and such. You see family members and the child says, mm. I don't want to physically touch them. I don't want to give a hug. Right. Um, there's other ways to warmly greet somebody that doesn't include violating that boundary, right? So those are non-sexual situations. And that's going to lay that foundation. Because mm -hmm. if you start this... And it's okay if that's where you are. You're like, oh, no, Dr. McGuire, I have an 18-year-old and I'm just starting now. That's okay. Mm. But ideally, if we start it young and it becomes just part of the way we are always communicating and interacting with each other, when we get to the stage where it's like, okay, I'm going to start dating, then you're like, okay, you know consent. We've practiced this your whole life. Now mm. you're just going to apply it to these kinds of situations. Oh, easy peasy, right? <laughs> it's not right. so much of a yeah, Julie, sure. could you speak to that a little bit? I feel like you've talked about that. I love that example of, I mean, because we, I mean, certainly in my age, you grew up like you went to your grandparents' house, like you had to kiss the uncle that you were like, ah, do I have to kiss Uncle John on the cheek? I mean, and Julie, you've talked about that's a great, I also like this idea that we talk about a lot too. And I was kind of curious about what, what at what age to start. And so I love that idea that the idea of consent can start early on. And I don't know, Julie, can you speak to that? I feel like you've talked about that. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I feel like um, it, it should start, you know, at age two. 
Um, and it doesn't have to, it doesn't have to be all about, you know, sex and touch and that kind of thing. But I, I think we subconsciously send messages to our children that to ignore their discomfort. So, you know, they don't want to say hi to uncle Bill because uncle Bill makes them feel a little weird. So they don't want to say hi. And we say, you have to, it's not polite to ignore Uncle Bill's greeting. And we teach them to put politeness over their gut feeling, their gut uh uh-oh feeling about something. And I know Gavin DeBecker has written a lot about this, you know, about personal safety and how by the time we're adults, especially, we learn to, we learn to stay around people who make us feel like they're not particularly safe. And, you know, it could be at the bus stop, you know, you're at the bus stop and there's somebody there who's like behaving erratically. And you say to yourself, well, I should move away, but it would be impolite to do so. And we put that kind of politeness over our own safety. And I think we model that as parents to children from a very young age. I mean, sadly, I, I, I have, you know, numbers of people who were, um, you know, sexually abused by the doorman in their building. And it often starts with the doorman says, hi, you know, little so-and-so, and you know, little kid. And the mother or father says, you know, you have to say hello. And so they're being taught to ignore the kind of uh-oh feeling. And, and I mean, it's happened more than mm. more times that I can count on both hands that because they were told to not pay attention to that discomfort um, as a real instinct um, of something that, you know, was happening in their world, it became a, a, a huge problem. Mm. And I think what Dr. McGuire is saying as well is that often family members take advantage of that. You know, it's not uncommon, sadly, for sexual abuse or sexual assault to be within the family. It's not usually a stranger. It's usually a, a persuasion predator, someone who works into the trust of the family or um, or is a member of the family. Yeah, thank you for, for bringing that up because I think there's two really key pieces here, again, for parents to have on the forefront of their mind and unlearn themselves because mm-hmm. we've been taught these, these kind of opposite scripts for so long. And one is that in that perspective of, but it's grandpa, but it's a poor man, but it's your teacher, but it's your priest, it's your mm-hmm. rabbi, etc. Yeah. We are also saying that certain people with certain titles have unlimited power and control in our lives. Mm-hmm. So how am I not going to understand that when I get into a dating relationship or I get married and this person has this title of my spouse um, or my partner that they can't do whatever they want to me, mm-hmm. right? They Title. I was taught title means I don't get to say no. Mm. Yeah. And, and exactly what you're saying too. We grew up with stranger danger. There are strangers in dark alleys, in the woods, right? Like, right. And they're going to come out and they're going to offer you candy or a puppy. And, and (laughs) right. Exactly. (laughs) It's not that never happens. right? Right. Of course it does. It has. It's horrible. But but it's so rare in comparison. We have so much statistical data on this in comparison to family members and people who are like family. And so we have to talk to our children about this might be someone we love. This could be someone we live with. This could be someone who we we think we can trust. But if mm-hmm. your intuition tells you otherwise or they do otherwise, mm. no, I will believe you. Wow. Uh, I, I wanted to, you know, we were going to talk about mistakes that parents can make when discussing consent. And I feel like we've covered it pretty well. I'm just wondering if there was anything else you would mention. We talked about, um, and and please tell me if I'm, I'm incorrect. We talked about not functioning from a place of fear with your child, 
not telling them how it should be so that it's an open conversation. You know, Julie has talked about um, that we can learn from our kids, that we have to, you know, focus on our, our own place. Is there anything we've missed in terms of mistakes that parents make when talking to their kids about consent? I think we have covered a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you also mentioned, even in your own experience, the the just kind of analysis paralysis, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, this is a lot. I think I'll just say nothing, <laughs> right? And and making sure that we don't stay in that place that we get support so we can feel empowered to have these discussions. I would say the the other big thing is to really consider um, the line of questioning that we might get into. Hmm. So if our child says, you know, I don't always feel comfortable around this person or sometimes the person I'm dating does things I don't really like, we often will immediately go into, did they hold you down and assault you? Are they hitting you? Did they touch mm. your genitals, right? And and mm. those are not good questions um, because yes, if it's that if it's escalated to that point, we want to know, but we want to know long before it gets there. Mm. <laughs> Just saying, I don't feel comfortable. This person's pushing my boundaries. Sometimes I feel afraid of them. One of the things that I talk about a lot with mm-hmm. dating and domestic violence is. We see a lot of scenarios where it jumps from verbal emotional abuse to homicide. Wow. And this is in all different age groups. Mm-hmm. There does not have to be that middle bridge of physical violence first. Mm. So asking, mm. are they hitting you again, are they holding you down, are they hurting you, does not mean that it's not going to escalate to something really, really horrible. Mm. Um, so instead, we want to say, wow, that's important that you're telling me that. Mm. Let's talk about what we can do about that so you feel safe and that you are protected and that you are supported because that's not okay at all. It's not okay that you just feel like something isn't right. Mm. And I think the other thing is we also have to be really conscious of, again, modeling how we respond to stories, how we respond to disclosures, what we post so if we're posting stories not about not believing survivors in the news, right? guess what our child's paying attention to? Right. Well, they're not going to believe me. Um, if we laugh along to a joke that's making fun of sexual assault, for example, very common prison rape as humor. Mm-hmm. If we think that's kind of funny, is our son going to tell us that somebody assaulted him? No. Right? And so we have to have that, that level of consciousness of... What am I saying? What is the message behind it? And am I contributing to the problem, even though I think I'm, I'm doing all the right things, but really uh, I am giving a very conflicting message there. So why don't, we, why don't we just wrap up? You talk about, you know, if an incident occurs, where does the child go for help? And I'm sure that, I mean, that's pretty broad because it probably depends on the circumstance. So I don't know, maybe we should take some real world situations. So let's say your child is at college, an event happens at school, uh, you know, they're at a party, let's say, or they're in their dorm room, an event happens with a partner that is not great. What, what, what does the child do? Where do they go? So if they're over the age of 18, of course, things become different right. and they then have a lot more options, right? And that, and that can be great because we can really make sure they get to people who can support them in navigating which options best for them. Mm. Um, At college, they can report it through Title IX, and that will trigger an investigation internally in the school. Or in some situations, depending on what's going on, they can report it also to campus or uh, city police. Can I just ask you, when you say report it to Title IX, what what does that mean? So Title IX is this wonderful law that says, and it's actually from kindergarten to grad school, it's across the board, high school students can report under Title IX as well, um, that something is going on in my educational environment where gender is an issue. So that's why harassment, dating, violence, stalking, et cetera, falls under that and is, is keeping me from being able to fully learn and have an educational experience. And so, yeah, they can they can report that to the school and say, I can't finish my classes right now. I can't focus. Mm. I don't feel safe. 
And if they want to make a report, which will be intense, there's an investigation, there's hearings, etc. So again, they want to talk to a confidential resource first to say, is this the route I want to go? But if they do, then they can also get interim measures where, for example, they'll be in different classes. If they're living with their partner in a dorm, they can be switched to a different dorm. Um, there, there's going to be things in place to make sure they feel safe throughout the investigation process. And then usually long-term things that come afterwards. But again, that is a heavy experience. And for some people, mm -hmm. they aren't ready to do that at that time. And so as parents, we want to make sure that we are not pushing them one way or another. Hmm. We're not saying don't report because it's going to ruin your academic career and it's going to impact the rest of your life and it's too much. Or you have to report. We have to get this person off the streets. They're terrible. And, you know, we have to do this about that situation. Whenever we are dealing with any kind of interpersonal harm or violence, the thing that is taken away from us is agency and power. When we the survivor, even our child, who's an adult, what they have to do, how they have to deal with this, we do that once again. Wow, that makes so much sense. Um, what about, I mean, how does it differ in, say, high school? Uh, I mean, I know you can do some of the same things, and again, it, it depends on the circumstance, but what does a child do? Like, you know, if you're a freshman and something occurs and, you know, do you go to your parents? I guess you could go to the high school counselor if you're not comfortable talking to your parents. Like, yeah, with, with children, it's, it is much more complicated, mm -hmm. right? And the child can be a 17 and a half year old, but legally they, mm -hmm. their options are, are going to be more controlled. Um, and in, in many ways, right. That's good. That's to protect them because, they're not able to navigate all of these things independently. Um, I, in some situations, you will have to report to authorities, the police, DCFS, right? If it's a situation, so let's give a scenario where that, that wouldn't necessarily apply. They are in class with someone, and this person is constantly making jokes and remarks about their gender presentation. Mm -hmm. Okay. So again, not something criminal that you would report to the police, but not okay. So, mm -hmm. and that's going to impact their educational experience. That's going to impact their mental health, et cetera. So they can definitely hopefully talk to a good school counselor. Um, if they're saying to you, I'm just feeling really stressed and they don't want to talk about why, get them with a good therapist, mm -hmm. right? That is the person who is trained to help get this story out and help them understand what's going on and how to get support. And they can also report that, again, to their school's Title IX office and say, this is a Title IX violation. Sadly, a lot of case 12 schools are way behind in this. This is why I wrote that very first book, was to get them hopefully more up to date. Um, but if the school is not going to do anything, they can report it to the Federal Department of Education and say, my child's being harassed in the classroom and the school district isn't doing anything about it then usually the school district will listen. Um, and we're seeing more and more school districts in a good way get in trouble for this because they've long ignored harassment and other behaviors that are similar to that in a middle and high school environment or even kindergarten or uh, elementary school environment and, and not had anyone step up and say, hey, this has to stop. This isn't okay. Hmm. So that is slowly shifting, but families should feel empowered in knowing, yeah, that you have a right to speak up and get support. Wow, that's all wonderful. That's um, why don't we just end this and we kind of do this on all of our episodes. It's it, and it can be sometimes tricky. We covered a lot of ground, but you know, for parents that have listened to this conversation, if there if there was one thing you felt was like most important if we're talking about the idea of talking to your kids about consent, if there was one thing you were like, I hope they can hold on to this idea as they leave this conversation. And I'd like you both to speak to this, but Dr. McGuire, why don't you go first? Um, what would that idea be? You're right. It is. You it can is do a couple. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. The, the, the key things I would want people to take away is number one, to, to really not feel afraid of any of these conversations. Yes, they are heavy. I often say consent is complex because human beings are complex. 
right? And we are combating mm. all of these scripts and narratives and perspectives that have not served us well. Um, and we are constantly having to unlearn that and address that. And that's, that's hard. But don't be afraid of it because it's not insurmountable, even if it is going to take some energy and effort. The other thing I would say is to really try to shift your your mindset from getting compliance or the world is scary and I have to be afraid for my child too. I really want my child to know that they have this as a human right, sent as a human right, that this is a lifestyle mm -hmm. they carry with them throughout their entire uh, journey into adulthood. And that this is a world that I want to be an active part in creating. Julie, did you want to add? I love that. Sorry, did you want to add anything? I don't know that I could add much. I mean, Dr. McGuire kind of said it all. Um, I, I guess the only thing that I would say is that parents need to make sure that they talk to all of their children, no matter what gender they are, because a lot of what gets ignored is talking specifically to cishet boys. Mm -hmm. um, yep. And it's like, so, and that's, that's kind of a fundamental change that I think we need to see is that, you know, that they don't have this sense of privilege. Um, and, you know, well, I'm giving my consent, so it doesn't really matter what the other person is doing. So, you know, I would just say, remember to make this discussion applicable, no matter what gender your child is. I think everybody needs to know. Yeah, I just want to add on to that because it's it's not only that that a cis white male or cis you know might feel some privilege, but they that they have their own fears and insecurities and questions and even incidents that make them uncomfortable. And there's always been this traditional idea of the the male, the alpha male, and um, I, we didn't really touch on that. I, I'm really glad you said that because I I think that idea is really important. Don't get caught up in this. It's one. And Dr. McGuire has spoken to us. It's 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 all of it's all kids, and 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 boys kids. are just as confused and have ideas about how they should act and have insecurities. So I I'm glad that we kind of ended there. Um, so Dr. Laura McGuire. This has been great. We really appreciate you being here. I want to say again that the new book is The Sexual Misconduct Prevention Guidebook. And can you mention the first book that you wrote again? Yes, it's called Creating Cultures of Consent, a guide for parents and educators. And what if people want to find you? Do you have a, a website? Yes, they can go to Dr. Dr. Laura, L-A-U-R-A, McGuire, M-C-G-U-I-R-E.com. Well, thank you so much. It's been Fabulous. it's been wonderful having thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Parenting Horizons podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please share with your family and friends. And if you'd like to hear more about Julie's work, join one of her parenting groups, or see about individual counseling, please visit ParentingHorizons.com. Or you can email Julie at Julie.Ross at ParentingHorizons.com. See you next time.